Well, for the rest, I bet until you saw the bulletin today that you had forgotten all about Micah. Maybe some of you would forgotten it's even in the Bible. I don't know. But uh, it has indeed been a several-week hiatus. Uh, we, we got to near the end, and today we will actually conclude the book. We got to near the end, and then we had our Reformation study as we looked at the doctrine of sola gratia, and then we had our, my study leave, and I thank T.E. Ken Thurman for filling in for me. And so now we turn our attention to the closing words of the prophet Micah. And so I invite you to read with me chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. Three verses but they come as the capstone to all that has been said before. The Lord's prophet, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says thus, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Brothers and sisters, this, even this, is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for having inspired your servant to write these words. And we thank you for the great flow of redemptive history that results in the birth of your son and the work of your son in fulfillment of these words. We ask, O oh God, that you would be with us now as we look at them. Grant that whatever I say that is not in accord with truth would just pass quickly from their minds. But whatever is true, that it would find fertile ground in their hearts. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, brothers and sisters, so here we are at the conclusion of the prophet Micah's book. As a reminder, Micah was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah. That is to say, he, he ministered, he prophesied alongside of Isaiah. And they were, they were different. Isaiah had, Isaiah had connections at the court, and Micah seems to have been more of a common man's, a working man's prophet, his vantage point being from the countryside gave him a, a real up-close perspective on the effects of society's woes and the sins of the people. And his book is seven chapters in length, and those seven chapters are composed of three oracles, three self-contained messages from God depicting a 
a cycle of judgment and ultimate salvation, of punishment and redemption. And so the first oracle was chapters 1 and 2. The second oracle is the longest, which is chapters 3 through 5, and it, it provides a grand sweeping picture of redemption and how God begins with a great court case indicting his people and their offenses, and it culminates with a look at the messianic age and the work of Christ. It's a wonder to read. And then finally he turns in chapter 6 and 7 to his closing oracle in which he brings everything home. He, co he commanded our attention at the beginning of his book by showcasing the fury of God's wrath. And we were exposed to, treated to such metaphors as, as the wiping of a plate, that the city of Jerusalem would look like a field after it's been disked by a farmer, just, just nothing, absolute, utter destruction because of God's wrath and fury at their sins. But now, having taken us through the highs and the lows, after he's given us very intimate, detailed pictures of, of an almost cannibalistic-like society that was feeding on the weak, the poor, the marginalized, that was rebelling against God's every command and forsaking the worship of the true God for idols in every way possible. After taking us through those and that resounding theme of forgiveness, of redemption, after having exposed us to the fury of God's wrath, he now concludes with a, with a marvelous word of the fountain of God's mercy. Micah, the prophet, his name means, who is like Yahweh? Who is like the Lord? And of course, that's a rhetorical question. It's making a statement attesting to the utter incomprehensibility and the utter incomparability of God. There is no deity to which you could compare God. There is nothing in existence that compares to the greatness of God. And so now, with a play on his name, he asks the question, who is like you? Who is a God like you? And he invites the reader, he invites us to immediately think in terms of the incomparability of God. To what would you liken God? He takes up a refrain from Exodus. Exodus 15, 11 to be precise, in which in the immediate aftermath of the Exodus event, Moses in the victory song, as the people of Israel are watching dead horses, dead soldiers float, the army of armies, the elite military of the most elite nation in the world utterly destroyed. And Moses, who is a God like? And so this refrain of incomparability comes up over and over throughout scriptures and it's taken us up here 
Because we too often seek to lower God to the estimation that is comparable to other things, and that just will not do. Our God is wondrous. He is incomparable in all of his attributes and in each of his ways. He is utterly incomparable. And of course, we can think of the incomparability of God when it comes to creation. Who is a God that creates from nothing? There is none. We can think of the incomparability of the of being the author of life. Who is a deity that can bring the dead back to life? There is none. Which is why the other religions of the world have a spirit realm like heaven, but no concept of a resurrection. Because theirs are not deities that raise from the dead. Who is a God who destroys in anger? Oh, there's lots of gods like that, right? Are there? Now, there are many ways that God is incomparable. But this chapter here, these words here invite us to consider one of the most wondrous, awesome ways in which God is utterly incomparable. And what is it? The fact that He forgives. The fact that he forgives. I defy you. Consider the world's religions. What what God forgives? Like the Lord. Even our culture is not a culture of forgiveness. There is no forgiveness in modern culture. You messed up once years ago, you're done, you're canceled. Who is like the Lord? Who forgives? Wow. Think about that. Forgiveness is is hard for us. We hold grudges. Even people who say they don't. Oh no. Once bitten, twice shy. Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice. Or, sorry, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. We live by that. We don't forget. And very seldom do we let things slide. But the Lord, who is a God like him, who restores and receives. And and he's uttering these words, not, not in response to, they didn't like me, they didn't show me the appreciation I deserved. They didn't pat my back the thing I did. They, they, they said a mean thing to me. He, he's a God who forgives brazen rebellion. Brazen, open contempt. And so, this passage po- calls us to ponder the incomparability of the Lord and his forgiveness along three lines. First, from verse 18, we have his character. Verse 18 says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? Okay, so breaking that down real quick, 
Iniquity refers to what we would call sin. It's, it's when something has been distorted. It's when something has, is not right. Okay, it's been twisted. You could dare say perverted. Okay, so there's sin and there's transgression, which has political overtones. That refers to rebellion, something that we would refer to with that term. Okay, so the totality of our, our little oopsies that twist and distort what God intended for good and our intentional acts of rebellion. The gamut is what he's saying here. Everything along the spectrum, and he does so, it's the remnant of his inheritance. Okay, so God is not a universalist. Understand that this passage, forgiveness is limited here to the remnant. Everyone else gets wrath. God is not a doormat. It is not God's occupation to forgive. Okay, understand, understand that. When he forgives, it's a willed choice. But it's a choice born out of who he is. You see, he does not retain his anger forever. Why not? In the face of all this mountain of sin and rebellion, in this, in this mountain of it, how could he not retain his anger forever? Because, it says, he delights in steadfast love. And this, of course, is a reflection back, or it reflects back to God's great self-declaration from Exodus 34. It's a very influential passage. In Exodus, Moses asks to see the Lord's face, and the Lord said, no one can see my face and live. Show me your glory. And so you know the passage. And here's what the Lord says. The Lord the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So the Lord, it is his character to show steadfast love. What is that? Well, that's the Hebrew word hesed. Some versions translate it loving kindness, loving faithfulness. It's, it's a hard word to translate into just one English word. Our concept of love is so broad, you can speak of loving a hot dog, or you can speak of God loving you, and the word is the same, but it means very different things. But loving kindness, steadfast love, they're, they're attempting to convey the Hebrew thought that first of all, said is covenantal. It's a willed, intentional, relational disposition and action that's costly because it costs something of you to look over the offense of the party in that relationship that has wronged you. Think of your marriage. It costs you something 
to overlook the offense that your spouse commits against you. It costs you something when your child looks at you and tells you they hate you and can't wait to be out from under your house. It costs you something to overlook that. Okay? Likewise, teen, when your parent punishes you too severely for the offense and you're just seething in anger at how unfair it is, it costs you something to let that go. And to not go, I can't wait till you're in the nursing home and then I can just leave you there. <laughs> okay? Hesed is costly. It always costs the one who has been wronged. And God is the one who has been wronged. But Hesed in addition to being covenantal and costly, it's, it's committed. You never, ever, ever have to guess where you stand. You never have to wonder, because of this, is this, is this the last straw? Are they out the door? Maybe some of you don't have that level of certainty in your life with your human relational partners. Maybe some of you wonder, is this the thing that's going to push them away? And you know how uncertain and uneasy and scary that can be. But with Hesed, man, it's set as solid. It's like the granite mountaintop on the horizon. It does not move. It's fixed. And so there's security. There's safety. And so because of this, because of God's com covenantally committed, costly love, it leads him to be jealous for his people. And there is anger and there is discipline when there is rebellion. But there's never a discarding. So God does not stay forever because of his said. And understand what this means practically. I, 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 don't, I, I don't want to challenge the, the uh, immutability of God, but understand this. The picture that Scripture paints is that if presented with a choice to punish or to forgive, God's inclination and desire is to forgive. Okay? It gives God great delight. It is the desire of his heart to forgive. So right there, let me stop. There may be some of you who have wandered far. There may be some of you who have sinned deeply, perhaps. Understand that God's preference and delight is to forgive. He's not the kind of God who holds it over your head. He's not the kind of God who will pull it out and use it in an argument years later. He's a God who just wants you to come to him because he is a forgiving, gracious, covenantally committed, costly sacrificing God. And here's the beautiful thing. When we speak of God desiring and him being inclined to forgive and how that's costly, 
the next verse actually paints a picture of him actually doing the work to make it possible for us to be reconciled to him. What does it say? He will again have compassion on us. How so or in what way or on what grounds or how come? Look what it says. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Look at those verbs. Tread underfoot. That, that's a wartime image. Okay? Maybe gruesome to you, but imagine a cavalry charge on horseback with chariots and they're going to run right over something. Not a pretty picture. Okay? But that's God defeating and destroying us, our iniquities, our sins are attacked and defeated by our costly saving God. And then he again pulls out the Exodus metaphor. He will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. That metaphor gets pulled out a few times in Scripture, but it harkens back to when God hurled the horse and its riders into the sea in the Exodus event. A complete drowning of them, never to be anymore. Understand that verse 19 here is not saying that God simply forgives our sins and doesn't hold them against us anymore. Though, though that's a true statement. This passage is saying that God will defeat and destroy and remove completely from sight our sins. Brothers and sisters, this is absolutely pointing us to the work of Christ who went to the cross and disarmed the principles and the powers and put them to open shame. And I love that he includes casting our sins into the sea, far removed from us. I love Rock of Ages because it, it points at the twofold effect of the work of Christ on our sin. Be of sin, the double cure. Cleanse me from its what? Its guilt and power. And so Jesus doesn't just kill our sins. He throws them into the sea. So they're not there anymore to be seen. And I think of Romans 6, which is a great argument of Paul about the fact that we have been set free from the guilt and the power of sin. But Romans 6, 6 kind of summarizes and then he extrapolates. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, which is a way of saying destroyed. 
so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And so the great prophet here paints a picture of this glorious day when our sins have not only been atoned, but that they have been defeated. All of the inclinations and pulls within us that that lead us into doing and saying and thinking and feeling and being the things that God despises are dealt with and resolved and disposed of. That's awesome. He breaks the power of canceled sin. And then finally, we see that the Lord is incomparable in his forgiveness because he is faithful to his word. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. The Lord's always taking us back to antiquity, isn't he? He loves telling us to look back. And that's precisely because it's in the looking back that you can see the great trail of grace. And you can see God's faithfulness played out over time. But you've got got to remember something here. We make much of Abraham. We talk about Abraham a lot. Um, It's... Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant are central to our theology. But you got to understand from the perspective of an old covenant person, Abraham doesn't really factor much into the self-conscious, the self-awareness of the people of God the way you might think in the Old Testament. What, What do I mean? Abraham is mentioned in the Old Testament 174 times. 133 are in Genesis. That means in the whole entirety of the rest of the book of, of the Old Testament, Abraham's mentioned like 40 times at map. Okay? By comparison, Moses, who, who is the most influential person in terms of national identity, self-awareness, Moses is mentioned in the, in the Old Testament 722 times. He eclipses Abraham in terms, of, in terms of being mentioned, his importance to their self-identity, to their sense of who they are as a people, because Moses is the lawgiver. So Abraham, he's mentioned, if you look at a bar chart, if you have a fancy Bible software, you'll see he's mentioned a whole bunch in Genesis, and then boop, it just falls off. And every now and then, Abraham Every now and then. And then once you get to the New Testament, Abraham's mentioned again a little bit more, but nothing like in. Now, why, do I, why am I even bothering to say this? Am I saying that Abraham's unimportant? No. What I'm saying is when he's brought up in subsequent books of the Bible, it's for an important point, and so don't miss it. You see... They had lived now for a millennia under the law. For, for four times as long as we've been a nation, they were, they were a nation living under the law of Moses. They'd seen good and bad. They'd seen 
prophets galore. They'd seen judges. They'd, they they had kind of just settled into a thing, a status quo of living. And they weren't really focused on the prize. They didn't have their eyes on the prize. Why? Because all too many of them had lost sight of the promise. And that promise was given not to Moses, but to Abraham. And so whenever Abraham is brought up by subsequent biblical authors, it's always in reference to the promise. So to say to these people, Abraham, he'll, he'll remember what he said to Abraham. He's saying, wake up. It looks bad. The Assyrians are here and they won't be, but then the Babylonians are going to be here and that's bad, but wake up. God made a promise. He made a promise to Abraham that in him all the nations would be blessed. And so until that is fulfilled, that means there's something more to come, which means we're not all going to be wiped out. God is faithful to his word. And then that theme of God remembering his word to Abraham gets picked back up by a young, betrothed teenager named Mary in Luke chapter 1 in her famous Magnificat in which she says, she's praising the Lord in Luke 1, 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. God keeps his promise and he wants you to keep that promise in mind by remembering the promise that helps you to have hope and confidence in the present with an optimistic perspective to the future because God keeps his word so objectively this all comes together in the fact that Jesus came and his work on the cross is finished. And we in him have been made complete. And we have been reconciled to the Father. And we now look forward to the hope of heaven. To the promise of eternal reward. But subjectively we apply this this way. There are some of you. Many of you, most of you, who are experiencing a world in chaos. Many of us are disappointed with the election and, and what it has to say about what people value and care about or don't care about. Many of us look at rising inflation and, and our inability to provide at the same level as we did even a year ago. And we see the epidemic level increase of anxiety 
I, I saw the headline of the Houston Chronicle that, that childhood ER visits for mental health are at record-breaking level. And I'm like, and I, and I, and I wanted to cry almost. Children having mental breakdowns? That's, they should be out swinging on a tire swing or something. Anyway, whatever. I'm, but our world is full of stuff that just weighs on us. And then we have our relational and, and, and our struggles with sin and just, and we can just feel, oh, I'm under the wrath of God or something. He's out to get me or, oh. And, and maybe, maybe God's got you in a situation because he's trying to get your attention. And if so, this passage is telling you. Rejoice. Because there's not a God like the Lord who forgives. He will not stay angry forever. And you may struggle with sin now. But the defeat is certain. The head of the snake has been severed and now it's just twisting and turning, working out its last energy spasms. You see, he whom he foreknew, he predestined. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified... He glorified. That's the Bible verse. Paul, over. he doesn't overlook, but he doesn't speak about sanctification there. But that's where it goes, right there. You're being sanctified. And so the sins that seem to have a great draw to you, by the working of the Spirit, lose. Lose their pull over time. And Christ, Christ redeems fully completely, truly, deeply from both the guilt and the power of sin. Because his love for you is deep, wide, immeasurable. It's costly, it costs him, but he pays the price. He paid it in the nail-pierced hands of his son. And so now everything that Jesus did for you will be given to you. That is the promise of God. You can hold on to it. Because he is faithful to his word. And so Micah ends with this wondrous look at God's forgiveness and how he's utterly incomparable, our God. He's a God who is predisposed to unfailing love. He's a God who is a destroyer of sin. And he is a God who is committed completely to his word. That's our God. That's the one who saves. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for being who you are and from who you are, having done what you've done and for doing what you do. We thank you. We ask that as we walk this path you have set before us, that we would do so with humility, but also with confidence, knowing that you are with us and that everything in heaven and on earth 
is being governed by the Son for his glory and the good of his people of which we are part. Lord, as we leave here today, grant that we would celebrate you and your incomparable forgiveness. And we ask that in all things, you would be glorified and that we would be satisfied. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.